This fall, you've got your priorities in order. Pumpkin spice everything and watching all the football that your heart desires. No, just me. The one thing that just so happened to slip your mind, build your website, which is kind of problematic because you know that a website is the secret sauce that's missing from your online presence. It's how your future clients will find you, whether from a referral or Google search. It's the best way for someone to vibe check you without you having to feel like you're an influencer. It's the key to sharing more about your specialty or focus area. And it's the one-stop shop for someone to learn more about your story and your values. All this to say, if your website is kind of meh or doesn't exist at all, you're leaving a lot of unknowns on the table. Not the best idea, considering it's a pretty important marketing tool. But there is some good news. You don't have to learn how to code or spend hours hunched over your coffee table trying to teach yourself how to build a website. Why not have me build it instead? Head on over to morgansinclairdesigns.com to book your discovery call. This is a surefire way to step into 2024 with a solid online presence without having to lift a finger or move a mouse. Welcome to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. My name's Hannah Turnbull. And I'm Morgan Sinclair. We're two non-diet dietitians, entrepreneurs, and Enneagram 7s here to talk shop about the business side of things. From managing a team of clinicians to building a cohesive brand to figuring out how the heck to pay yourself, we get deep down in it, talking about what it actually takes to start, run, and grow your weight-inclusive business, the good and the messy. We know your degree didn't include any business classes, at least not any applicable to what you're doing now as an entrepreneur. This is why we're on a mission to bring business education to other weight-inclusive clinicians. Say sayonara to all the hours spent on Google and hello to information that is actually relevant. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to be chatting about the current state of private practice, including trends that we've been seeing, if private practice is truly sustainable, and if it's here to stay. But before we dive into today's episode, let's check in with Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hello. What are your highs and lows of the last week? By the time this episode comes out, I will be in Mexico. Which is exciting. So I'm going to say that's my high. Um, We're in like the final hours of getting our shit together and getting some things sold, getting things packed, making sure our condo is ready to go for our tenants. And it's just chaos. Like everything's down to the wire last minute. It's crazy how there are so many things that have to be done last minute. Like we couldn't have worked ahead for it. And that's always the thing that stresses me out, even though I know it'll all get done. But I'm, I'm feeling it today being about 24 hours from hitting the road for three months. I remember whenever I was leaving for Italy for three months and people are like, you're nuts. And I'm like, no, I'm not. This is so much fun. And now like you being like, I'm gone for three months, technically three and a half for you. Just about, Um, yeah. And I like my first instinct is to be like, oh my God, you're nuts. You're going to be on the road living in your van. And I know like some other places too, but like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And we're really not living in the van at all. We're just using it to get down to Mexico. And then we're going to park it at my partner's family's house. And we're going to take a car and bop around Airbnb to Airbnb. So, oh, that'll be good. Yes. Yes. We in the van is a lot Mm -hmm. of time in the van. Yes. Especially since the last leg of our trip, we're going to be in Utah and that's going to be cold. And if we're both taking work meetings, we can't really have one person outside. Outside. Yes, we will be staying in Airbnbs. We're going to stay in Cocoon like we did in Mexico City when we took our group admincation. We booked another one of those, which is really great. Um, and are, are you like doing like a month in Hermosilla and the beach and then a month in Mexico City and then to Utah? Or like, what does that look like? Yeah, so we're going to be in Hermosillo for one week. We're going to San Carlos, which is a beach near Hermesio, and we'll be there for about almost a month. So think about a month in Hermesio, northern Mexico. Go down to San Pancho, which is near Sayulita, for, I want to say, two weeks. And then we go over to Mexico City for about 10 days. And then we're going to Valle de Bravo, which is a lake town two hours from Mexico City, for another week. All of that should add up to about two months. And then I come back to the U.S. for the holidays for a few days with my family. And then 
go back to Mexico, cross the border, figure out what to do for about four days. I think we're probably going to hang out in Arizona in the van. That one will be in the van. And then we booked an Airbnb in Utah for five weeks from my birthday, December 30th until February 1st. And that's 20 minutes from three mountains on the Icon Pass. So we're just going to spear things out. Yeah. That's amazing. All of the places you're going to uh, along the Pacific coast, are they all good from the hurricane that just hit? Yeah. So the hurricane hit in Alcantara, which is unfortunately, that's kind of the place people from Mexico City go for their quote unquote vacations. Um, And uh, it's been devastating. Like there's a cat five. I think it was a cat five hurricane, which is never. It was. It literally went from a tropical storm to a category five hurricane in 12 hours. Yeah. Which that's is, never, ha- I don't think that's happened in years and years and years and years, if ever. Oh yeah. Acapulco is like much farther South than where y'all are going. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Woo. Yeah. I was uh, um, watching the news about it this morning and that just, and as someone who has lived through many high category three, four, five hurricanes, it is terrifying. I think water is one of the most destructive elements. I think about that a lot when, you know, in Colorado, we have a fire right now and it was super smoky when we woke up this morning. Mm -hmm. And I I think when I was growing up, and this makes me think about Pokemon too, when you'd have all the little creatures and one would be like fire, earth, water. I would always pick the fire one because as a kid, I was like, that's obviously the most powerful. It's hot. It'll burn you. And now that I'm an adult and I see all these natural disasters happening and a lot of them from a hurricane for example being like hurricane water. flooding tornado yes. yes to but like the water piece specifically i just right. think like water is so powerful and even on a smaller scale like if you don't clean up water on your bathroom floor and it leaks through the tile like it can totally destroy the building infrastructure right so yeah. it's just like water is so powerful in many different sneaky ways and very obvious ways like a hurricane anyway that was kind of a tangent but Ugh, yeah. I'm thinking of all the people impacted by that. And then the rest of our world, that's a dumpster fire as well. Like we've mentioned on the podcast. So I, those are, that's my lows and highs. I think all wrapped up in there. Yeah. It's a lot of transition that's coming up literally yeah. tomorrow. So that makes sense that, it, that it's a lot on your brain right now. Yeah. Hopefully by the time you listen to this, I will be settled and <laughs> practicing mi espanol todos los días. What about you? Ooh, what has been going on in my business the last week? My high of the week, uh, two things. One is that I wrapped up the dessert before dinner template stuff. I'm going to say quicker than I thought I would because I thought I still had a lot to do for it. And so I was planning for like a mid-November launch date. And then I was like going through my checklist literally yesterday. And I was like, oh, everything's done and so i'm launching instead um that's a nice pleasant surprise from past morgan like i know i know i was like okay cool yeah let's do it and so that's exciting and then last friday i got a text from penny who works for a coffee farm down in mexico who supplies the beans to tenfold um whole weird connection that I won't get too much into, but I got a text from her. She was like, Hey, me and Gigi, fourth generation coffee farmer have prepared a presentation for you for the eating expedition trip. Are you free to meet? And so I ended up meeting with them on Monday and I like, wasn't expecting this at all. I knew they were going to like help me, um, with some things, but they straight up gave me a 14 slide PowerPoint with options to choose from, what their recommendations were, cost of things. Um, Just like it was so helpful. And so that kind of like sparked inspiration again for the Mexico City eating expedition trip where I decided to add on one more day in Veracruz because there was just they just gave me too many good options that I couldn't say no to, to some of them. And so yeah, we're like even closer to getting all of that up and running next steps. There's like a couple things that I'm waiting for the cost of just because like, I have no idea how much transportation costs, like in terms of like renting a shuttle van for everyone. And so they're going to do some research on that for me. 
Um, I tried Googling it and it was anywhere from like $30 an hour to like $200 an hour. And I was like, I don't even know. I don't know reputable companies. I don't know how to how to price this out. And so they're helping with that. And then I need to figure out where we're staying in Veracruz to get the cost of that. But like once those things are narrowed down, at least I will be able to set the price of the trip and open up registration. Woo! When are you, what would be your ideal situation for having all that information and launching? Um, having all the information probably middle of next week. So I can launch the second Friday in November. How awesome. And now that I said this on the podcast, I'm going to like have to do it. So Uh, we love accountability. We love spoken accountability. That seems very reasonable. It's two weeks out still a little bit over. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's manageable. I'm, there's actually a voice note that I need to listen to from Penny, um, about logistics things. I am so thankful for people that are like on site because while I could figure this out on my own, it is so nice to have people who like live there to be able to support some of the, some of like those logistics. Well, it also makes things more legit in a way of working with locals and making sure that you have a great experience. That's not just like a tourist right situation. Like it's authentic and that's what people want. That's what people want. Yeah. And so like one of the nights they were like, well, here's two restaurants that we really like in Veracruz, but also like Gigi's family wants to host y'all at their house for dinner. So that's what we're doing. Okay. That is awesome. My partner actually said something similar when he was looking at a trip um, in Turkey a while ago. And Mm -hmm. he was like, we we were just talking about like, what makes these trips worth it to go on for people? And he's like, I want to be sitting in somebody from Turkey's family's house and having the best recipe from their grandma, kind of something Mm -hmm. like that. Yep. That's exactly exactly what this is. Exactly. And then there's a, there's a cooking class with Gigi's mom's mentor. Who's like a cook. Yeah. That is awesome. It's just like, so cool. It's so cool. So I'm like, should I go to Veracruz? Cause I've never been to Veracruz. So I'm like, should I book a trip to Veracruz in like January and go like, check everything out or should I just like be pleasantly surprised when I get there? I don't really know. I haven't decided yet. Mm, I mean, another vacation. Why not? Yeah. My low of this last week is a little bit more on the personal side, but still, I mean, it impacts business and I've just been having recurring thoughts of would I feel more confident taking risks in my business if I had a partner whose income I could fall back on. 1000%. Yes. That's like, and then the thought goes to, it's so unfair that I don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so like that's just been, yeah, it's just been a really interesting thing to grapple with of someone who feels so confident and fe- and is so independent. And then, being like, oh, huh, that might make things a little easier, but then it's so far outside of my control that I have to just like radically accept that's not my situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's been taking well, up a lot of brain space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only is it like the financial piece that would be supportive, but just like doing life with a person and also j- just the security of having this piece quote unquote figured out, right? Not right. that anything's ever figured out, but I, I totally understand and sending you lots of love. And thanks for sharing that. Cause I know there's other people listening who can definitely relate. And I know for a long time when I, it was just me feeling that of like, mm-hmm. I would have so much less stress if this all wasn't on me, like the crushing yeah. weight of life, life of having to run a household, manage a household, do all the tasks. And, and yeah, so it's just, it's, it's like, yeah, it's like one of those things where it's like all of it's outside of my control. For the, I mean, most of it's outside of my control of being able to like actually change that situation. Um, and so just having to like radically accept that, that this is where I'm at. And yes, there might be some things that I can't risk in my business out of not having something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. to say that having a partner would fix that either, but. Yeah, but anyway. it's, <laughs> it's the real privilege of dinks, right? Or. Right dual income households. Right. 
Right. So I was I actually started listening to our um, financially independent ladies podcast again because I was like, I need a gentle reminder that it's all going to be OK. And I'm pretty sure past Morgan would have said something in this podcast episode about it all being OK. Mm, I love that. I love that you can revisit our pod for coziness. Yep. You ready to dive into today's episode? Let's do it. All right. Let me set the scene. It's a Monday morning and I get a text from Hannah that says, do you feel like the field is changing? I just keep thinking about how everyone is talking about things being slow with clients. Do you think more or less people want to be in private practice? I was feeling very existential this morning and decided to just send Morgan this nice little text. Which is what we're here for, right? Sometimes we have these like super existential meta kind of thoughts related to business and you and I can just be a landing space for each other. But these are really good questions, which is now why we're talking about it with microphones in front of us. Yeah, it's it's leading to kind of have a conversation about the state of private practice right now. And so let's start there. Morgan, you work with private practice owners in the capacity of design, strategy, email marketing, all that stuff. So even though you're not in the private practice space, you have that congruence to people who are. Tell us about what you are seeing as the state of private practice right now from what you're hearing. I would say that it has been slower than usual. And I know I mentioned this on last week's podcast too of like, I think it was last week's podcast where I tend to feel the trends of private practice like two months after they happen. Because if people, if it's slow and practices aren't bringing in money, they're less likely to hire a brand strategist and web designer. Whereas if things are like booming, then they're more likely to have extra money to spend on things like business coaching, developing an online presence, the whole shebang that I support with. And it's always, this has always been a really interesting conversation to have. I'll pull in my experience with outreach as well, because I, whenever I was doing that, I was having 10 plus conversations a week at minimum about what private practice was like. And depending on how private practice was influenced, usually if people would refer to the higher level of care or not, I feel like it was this constant talk of like, man, things are really slow right now. Are you hearing that from other clinicians? And then I go to the next meeting and they'd be like, yeah, things are like going really great. I'm having to refer people out because I'm full. Like, have you been seeing that with other people too? And I'm like, yes. And like all of it. And they're just like, isn't a clear way of, of stating what's happening in private practice. I don't feel confident being able to make a clear statement on the state of private practice because I'm not in it. I'm only in Texas and Texas is not indicative of what's happening in the rest of the world and the rest of the US. And I feel like the people that I do work with probably have pretty good success in their businesses because they are making enough money to afford my services. Brilliant. Your turn. <laughs> What's the state of private practice in your mind, both hands-on in Colorado, but also working with group business owners? Yes. I want to have, I'm glad you pointed out that my response to this is very me integrated into it and how I'm feeling it at my practice and also what I'm seeing as a business coach that's worked with folks across 15 states. I counted it up the other day as we're updating my website because I wanted to know like how many group practice owners, how many states, it's 60 clinicians in 15 states. What I'm feeling at Nourish Colorado, we had the slowest months fucking ever from mid-August until early October. I've never seen anything like that in my six years of solo practice for a year plus five years of group practice. And I wanted to name that one to normalize it for people that are feeling it too. Two, because we can't anticipate these things and we'll talk about market and all of that. And three, it's been very humbling 
of, oh shit, me as someone who quote unquote has everything figured out and people look to as a leader and someone with a successful group practice, which we are fine and okay. I'd like my clinicians to be a little bit more full, but we will get there. And there's nothing that could have been done about this market shift that temporarily happened. It feels like things are picking up again. Um, But when we onboarded new people in September, it was a whole different experience than anybody in the past. It usually takes three to six months to fill someone up. And we had such low volume inquiries that we didn't even have enough clients in the first month to give really any to our new people. And that's never happened. So this is me being transparent and just wanting to normalize being in the face of someone who's quote unquote figured it out. This impacted my company. I'm hearing the same stuff from group practice owners for the most part. There's a handful where people are like, we're so busy and full and we're still referring people out. And I always think that's so interesting. And I collect this data in my brain. I'm like, okay, what's happening in these states, this area with this practice? Do they have a niche that's really rocking it out? Um, But I would say the average is people are feeling it. Yeah. Multitude of reasons. And I feel it too the last couple of months. Um, Because usually I have a handful of discovery calls a month. And I think in between August, like that time frame between August and October, I think I only had three discovery calls. And that's usually, like I mentioned, I'm kind of like a like a little lag uh, from what's actually happening in private practice. And I definitely felt that as well, um, kind of in a roundabout way. I feel it too. When I'm getting inquiries for business coaching, and I think I said this on a couple of podcasts ago too, I've had less inquiries in the last two months, which again is okay because I understand market trends, high and low seasons. Also, I'm not taking on anybody new until 2024. So it's a moot point anyway, unless there's like a one-off or something. I am doing a couple of those, but it's people are less likely to grow and scale their business if they're not feeling like what they're doing solo is sustainable because they're not getting enough clients or they're feeling the hurt of the market. They're in survival mode, mm-hmm. not growth mode. Right. They're right. surviving, not thriving. And that is a normal, normal part to go through. And it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so hard to portray to people, whether it's us having conversations on the podcast or me doing business coaching or us trying to support folks in the accountability club, instability in your business is normal. That's the risk of being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And it's so fucking uncomfortable and it's going to happen. And so you really, that's one of the characteristics you develop as an entrepreneur is being able to tolerate the flow and knowing everything is cyclical. 100%. So We wanted to just name a couple of trends since we've been in private practice or private practice adjacent spaces, um, starting in 2018-ish, moving up until now. So Hannah, what are some trends that you have been seeing? Yes. I wanted to talk about 2018 specifically because that is when my private practice started to really take off. I started things a little bit in 2017 in the fall. And then when I moved to Denver in May of 2018, got off the space, got connected in the community, things started to propel from there. But even with that, it still took me a good year to get a full caseload, to keep things flowing, to have an overflow of referrals to where I felt confident in my capability to bring on another person. 2018, in the nutrition space, in the therapy space, I feel like was when a lot of things were popping off. People were wanting their own practices. People were learning how to take insurance. People were seeing the demand and the crowd of folks being like, yes, give us something different. We're interested in this non-diet, weight-inclusive, social justice-oriented approach. Things were popping off in 2018 and continuing to grow and build and Till 2020. I don't know if this is because this is kind of also when I started working as a dietitian, really started getting involved in the private practice space in 2018 also. But I remember going to a networking event in 2017 
fall of 2017. And there was one other person there that was under the age of 30. It was me and another person. And, and like, that was like, that was a very pivotal moment of like 2018. That's when her and I met whenever we were both like young RDs. And now like, there's probably at least 30 clinicians that are between the ages of 25 and 30 in Houston now. And so like it has, it's just grown so much. And I, 2018 was also the time that I was thinking too. I'm curious if it's like that, if it was like that in other states as well. But I I do think that's kind of when all of the non-diet, anti-diet, I can support people in private practice started popping off. Tracks. It tracks. Also, I'm thinking about the Instagram boom of yes. a ton of folks starting Instagrams, talking about non-diet approaches. I think this was even before Reels. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so it was enough to do an Instagram post with a power statement that resonated with people and some hashtags and to comment Mm -hmm. on each other's stuff and really grow your following fairly quickly um, and make impact because it was newer, quote unquote, newer. And I'm saying this with a ton of carefulness and compassion because there has been so many folks in different spaces, in different identities who have been doing this work for fucking ages and oh, total yeah. trailblazers. So I'm not discrediting them at all. Yep. And then we get to 2020. Oh, 2020. We don't miss you. Not at all. There was such a need for mental health care in 2020. Okay. Here's the interesting thing though, because we, I'm going to speak for all of us in the U.S. We did not see this coming. When we heard about what was going on in other countries when COVID was starting to spread and it hadn't hit, yet hit the U.S., I think we were all very ignorant. And I say ignorant in a way of like, we just didn't know what could happen. Like, I don't think many of us have lived through something like this. There's been things in the past, but this in this time where there's technology and just a different world, this there's never been anything like it. And so for the first couple months of the pandemic, with people being so used to probably 80% of folks being in person for care, having to do a total pivot and switch 100% virtual yep. was really hard for a lot of places, for treatment centers, for private practice owners. Um and then we settled. We settled into it. Yeah, we fucking did that. We made the pivot. We settled into it. And then I think once we realized that this was going to be here longer than we anticipated, that's kind of when we saw this like increased demand of mental health care because we were all going a little nuts. Yes. Yes. We were all feeling the weight of the pandemic. We were feeling the injustices and the rise of Black Lives Matter. We were feeling the existential thoughts of now that I have the chance to slow down and everything is taken away from me, what do I want for myself? Mm -hmm. And going through that at the same time as our clients. So that's as clinicians, right? And then also our clients having less quote unquote things to go to like trips, like their usual day to day and made it easier for them to focus on their mental health in some ways. And they could see like, I need to do this. This is a hard time. I need help. And that brings us to kind of where we're at now of navigating private practice post pandemic and the changes that have come with this, because I think a lot of us have gotten used to virtual work. It's definitely one big less one less big expense of having an office space. Like there are just so many changes. And I think running a virtual practice has also given people more confidence in their ability to run a private practice because there's less barriers to doing it. Yes. I want to back up for just one moment and put out of the pandemic in air quotes, because we know COVID's still a thing. Yes. Pretty sure I might've had it a couple weeks ago even though I tested negative, it's just all the symptoms were there. I know plenty of people that have it right now. It's still impacting people. There's still devastation from it. We're speaking to us as a collective society, trying to get back to our quote unquote new normal, which means 
figuring out what's a new cadence where people want visits with their clinician. Um, do things continue fully virtually or is there a desire for in-person visits? What's up with all these big techie healthcare companies who capitalized on the pandemic? Which leads us to our big question of this episode of our private practice trends happening because of our personal aspect or because of market demand. Dun, dun, dun. And the way we we're trying to figure out like what kind of visual that we wanted to kind of put into place as we navigate this conversation. And the best thing that we came up with was a nice little Venn diagram where you have your personal aspect on one side of like you as the clinician and the business owner. And then we have the market on the other side, such as what our potential clients and current clients are needing from us and wanting from us. And then there's the nice little sliver in the middle where there's some overlay between the two. And we just want to say we are not expert economists. <laughs> no, this is all our opinion. What we're seeing people who are in the business space and have a lot of interaction with private practice owners, business owners who support private practices, all that stuff. So that's my caveat. Let's talk about the personal first. The pandemic burned everybody the fuck out. In all aspects. Yes. Clients, clinicians, all of them. Everyone. I would say what I was seeing the most, it goes hand in hand with the great resignation, where specifically in our industry, folks were working for, clinicians were working for higher level of care or hospital. Um, there was less flexibility with that. There was a lot of uncertainty with those companies trying to figure out what to do during the pandemic which I think contributed even more to burnout and chaos. And so a lot of people took the leap into starting their own practice during that first year of the pandemic, 2020 going into 2021. And I think it was out of necessity of what people needed to do for their own mental health to have a little bit more control over their schedule and what they were needing in life during the pandemic. Totally. And one big piece of that is a lot of places were requiring people to go in person and there was a lack of safety there and not wanting to be exposed. And then also parents who lost their childcare, like it gets really deep, really fast on almost the forced nature of private practice for some. I think what is happening now is that folks who ha who made that leap into private practice during the beginning stages of the pandemic, during 2020 and 2021, it's been about three years, two to three years since they've made that leap. You and I always talk about how this is right around the time that you really figure out if this is what you're wanting to do or not. You've given it, it's like enough time to kind of settle into it a little bit. And I think a lot of people are questioning if this is actually the right choice for them while knowing that it was what needed to happen during that time. But now that they're, I mean, this is kind of where the personal and the market come hand in hand. When there is the dip in demand for mental health care services and you, you don't get as many discovery calls, you don't have as many clients, you're now having to get creative with how to market your business, how to crunch numbers in your business, how to have distress tolerance in your business. And being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart. And so having to figure that out or maybe even realizing that you don't like doing any of those things, there's now this questioning of like, okay, like, do I actually want to be running my own practice or do I just love the client work and could do without the business side of the things? Yes, there's that piece. And then there's people who are wanting to leave the field altogether, right? That mm -hmm. don't want to do client work anymore. Um and I love that we always talk about the three-year mark because it's usually either a settling in, adding in some kind of diversity to the work so that you are continuing to grow and learn or doing something completely different. All of that is very normal. Okay. I want to bump back to 
talking about not wanting to be the business owner, but loving uh-huh. the client work. This one pulls on my heartstrings in a really good way. And that's why I love group practice. And we'll talk about group practice later, but I think it's the beautiful marrying of someone wanting flexibility, autonomy, and being outpatient without having to run the business and getting to do the work that they love, getting to shut off at the end of the day, as much as you can in this world, right? You're still going to have looming thoughts about a really good session you had with the client or a hard session, but being able to navigate that and set boundaries with it without having to worry about checking your Aetna account to see if you got paid for a claim from 10 weeks ago, it's it hits different. It does. I think there's also, it doesn't have to be this like black and white thing too. I actually, one of the stages, uh, one of the stages in the Weight Inclusive Business Academy is what I call the groupie where they are part of a group practice and that's how they see clients because they don't want to do the logistics and the running the business side of a private practice, but they enjoy providing education, supporting other clinicians, getting to go into more corporate wellness, getting to do brand partnerships, media, all of that, where like it's their personal brand. So they're still getting to be a part of the group practice and do the client work and not have to be the business owner of that, but they love getting to market themselves as like a media dietitian or um, some other biz to biz support kind of bouncing off of our conversation from last week. Um, And so there can still be this like private practice trend happening of not wanting to be the business owner of the private practice, but still owning a business in a different capacity. Sure. Sure. And then there's folks who are just, I want to be completely in this one space and not own a business at all. So there's so many different variations of, of these. I also want to talk about the cycle of work and business. And this really kind of hits back to the three-year thing, but it's really normal as a clinician going through your career where you do something for a while and you want to move on to something else. Yes. So whether that's like your cycle of work where there's a timeline or a time frame that you like doing something until it's too repetitive or you want to do something else or you have a completely different desire. And then the same thing can happen with business. Like business is cyclical and it kind of goes back to market and demand and being able to ride the slower seasons because it's not just, you know, that chart with an upward arrow that's like, yay, it's always going to go up. It's that annoying squiggly thing we always reference in recovery. And we're in a downturn right now. We're totally in a downturn and that's okay. But short-term it sucks. Short-term it sucks. Long-term we'll be okay. I... I love some good personal aspects because I think it is a really important question to ask yourself if like, you know, now that we're mostly post-pandemic, more things are in person, the whole shebang, really questioning if it's the right choice for you as much of a choice that we have within that, um, just because there's so many other things that impact us that are out of our control. But I'm most curious about the market demand and how trends have shifted because of the market demand. So we've noticed five big market trends that kind of has occurred during the pandemic. So number one, increased demand for mental health care, eating disorder care in general. Number two, virtual care. So whether it's more solo private practices that are virtual, group practices fully virtual, And then number three, mental health care tech companies, which ties into virtual, like we've seen a lot of pop-ups of virtual healthcare on a way bigger scale from giant group practices to full treatment centers that are absolutely only virtual. There's also the ongoing conversation of insurance versus private pay and how that's a market trend. And then group practice, which just in general, what does that scene look like right now? I love it. Where do we want to start? Let's talk about increased mental health care and how that's shifting right now. One of my favorite things to come out of the pandemic, which I know is a weird thing to say, is everyone just seems so much more comfortable talking about mental health. 
I feel like so many influencers during the pandemic were using platforms to talk about mental health, getting mental health care. And with this increased demand of, I think, removing some of the shame is one piece of it, but also just like needing more support around mental health as we were going through a pandemic is what contributed to all these other things in the market and or is or has at least significantly impacted all these other things in the market like you mentioned earlier i don't think we would have shifted into a virtual care heavy space if it weren't for the pandemic fact these mental health tech companies probably would never have started if it weren't for the increased demand of mental health care during the pandemic and i think most of them started uh and dare I say, capitalize off of the pandemic of reaching people that were not located in big cities, which is where most of the eating disorder care was to begin with. And so there's kind of like a twofold of that. And then I'll let you speak more to like the insurance private pay and group practice piece, because that is your wheelhouse. And I'll just say they also tie into what you're building upon here of the reason these big mental health tech companies could grow is most of them are insurance based and have specific contracts with insurance to where they can get a higher reimbursement rate and have more services covered. So they've really kind of monopolized on that as well. But to separate out the issue of insurance and versus private pay and where the market is right now, I have a total hot take on this. And I know you have some thoughts as well. I'm going to say it is so much more sustainable to be an insurance group practice right now because we're heading towards a recession in and out of it. I don't know where we're going to go. I'm just assuming because there's a downturn in market, we might hit one at some point soon. Regardless if we hit it or not, I think it's safe to say that people are way more cognizant with their spending and their money right now in this period because they don't know, because we don't know what's going to happen. Yes. And so if possible, well, one, people are less willing to pay out of pocket if they don't have to. And that's where insurance comes in. So I'm in an area where we're insurance heavy. We have a ton of clinicians taking insurance. We have pretty decent contracts. We have pretty decent coverage. We have less private pay people at our practice than we ever have. I That makes me so happy to hear that people are utilizing their insurance. I think the biggest differentiating factor is that certain states, there's insurance companies in certain states where it is nearly impossible to get a contract with the insurance company. I know that there's, and I can, you know, I, my blinders are on when it comes to I'm talking mostly to people in Houston and people in Texas. And there are just some insurance companies where it is way harder to get a contract where using insurance is just not as accessible or available in specifically Texas. But I imagine that's probably happening in a couple other states as well. But then it's really interesting because the one insurance that actually does do a really good job in Texas is does not do a great job in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, which speaks to a bigger issue of like discrepancies in insurance, nothing's consistent across the board and right. a lot of bullshit. Right. But I agree in the sense of like, if you are able to get onto a insurance panel, even if it's just one, that there is, there's always going to be people that have that insurance that will need your services and support and it's going to be covered by their insurance. So like who wouldn't want to use that? Yes. And we don't want to generalize anything, which is why we're bringing up the point of there is some areas where people are still thriving with private pay. Yes. And that's partially because the norm in that area is insurance isn't even accessible. So you have to pay for this service. I also think private pay practices that are well-established and maybe even started their group or their solo practice before 2018 and are just very immersed in the area they're in, get more private pay referrals if that's what they've always kind of had a line to. And a lot of the time, maybe they're in 
areas where there's more affluent people and people who have resources, which again, then they're serving a certain kind of client that will always have money. And that's just a whole different, very niche situation. I, for the most part, if I were to overarch something, most group practices that take insurance are benefiting from that right now. And that's been very protective, helping continue the things on even when it's slow. So I always think insurance is, obviously I'm a fan because access to care, um, being in the system that we're in and needing to work with what we have. And also people do prefer to use this. Like I think it's a fail safe to continuing on business, even in tough times. One of the things that I am so fascinated with over the last couple of years is the uprise of mental health tech companies. I think I'm mostly interested in this because I did some consulting work for two of them that are like venture backed companies. Some of them are not all of them. And both inside and outside of the eating disorder space. I'm trying to choose my words carefully because I think that their ability to provide access to care virtually during the pandemic was incredible, especially because so many of them are insurance. They t- So many of them take insurance or have contracts with insurance. And it's incredible. Where I'm hesitant is or questioning is, is there ever going to be a time where there are too many virtual only mental health tech companies that have hundreds of employees versus a private practice that is offering virtual care? What's the delineation there? And I think there's also a huge difference between virtual eating disorder treatment, where usually the only access you can get for eating disorder treatment is in larger cities. That feels different to me than just general mental health, because I think there are more mental health counselors available in smaller cities to support with outpatient needs. So there's there's so much to this conversation. Absolutely. And so many things that we don't know. And I'm sure people in these spaces, founders and capital venture capitalists are asking the same questions of like, is this a period of time? And what's also important with these companies, like there's some really awesome ones that are increasing access to care, which is the the drive, right? But there's also some that have lawsuits because they're selling people's data. And when you grow so big, it can sometimes decrease the quality of care. And it's growing pains, right? So we're seeing some of these companies have that piece. And when we're talking about sustainability, a lot of these things that grow so fast have a quick downturn as well. I think I've noticed it most as well. And I'm curious what your takes on this are also, but being in so many Facebook groups with dietitians, where everyone's like, you know, I'm applying to work with this company. I'm applying to work with this company. And those companies arose during the last few years where they are having to meet certain metrics because of the investors. And I just feel like a little fly on the wall getting to read about everyone's experiences with these bigger tech startup mental health companies that just feel very different than a group private practice where there's, I think there's just a lot more, what's the word I'm looking for? Like care for the clinicians, like intimate relationships with the clinicians, as opposed to being a replaceable team member for a bigger company that is just hiring you to meet metrics. As a group practice owner and group practice coach, (laughs) I applaud you for bringing this up. Thank you so much because it is totally different. And that's one of the things I stand by for group practice and having a grassroots situation where it's a team on the ground, even if it's virtual, like having a smaller team that's founded and directed by a clinician who really cares about the cause, has done the work. It is a totally different field than 26-year-old tech bros who decide to get into a market. Just going to say it. 
obviously I'm biased, but that's where, and we can talk about the trend of group practice. And in our notes, I put a bunch of question marks because I actually think group practice is the most sustainable because when you have more people on a team, there's power in numbers. You can get better rates from insurance companies, pay your team more, give them benefits. You make an established team on the ground where people in your community don't don't have to worry about your group practice just totally disappearing one day, like what can happen in venture capital situations or being acquired by another company. And so I think group practice is where it's at. I feel very proud, even in the hard shit, like I don't think I can talk about it enough, even being someone with an established group practice, this is still very hard sometimes. Things worth doing in life are hard. It's not easy. It's just not. And, but what I can say is I'm really proud of what group practice as a grassroots effort and having clinicians be founders and directors and leaders, what that offers clients, clinicians, the community. I'm just, okay, I'm off my soapbox now. I appreciate all of your insight into group practice. To answer the OG questions of the text message that you sent. Do you feel like the field is changing? Yes. Do you think more or less people want to be in private practice? TBD. I think it's a very individual decision. I think it's a very individual case-by-case aspect of being in business. This conversation, we're not here to discourage anyone because there are people rocking it out in solo private practice and group private practice. I think there are definitely certain things to consider, and it is interesting and important to look at some of the trends that have been happening and figure out how uh, those trends are impacting you, figure out how the market is impacting the trends, and kind of look at it from a bird's eye view and kind of keeping tabs on everything that's related to that in order to make a decision that is sustainable to you and what you are wanting out of your life. Also on a bigger scale, the world is changing. Other markets are changing. This is business, baby. Like you have to be okay with change and what you can do to be a successful business owner, entrepreneur, if you do choose that path is get in front of those changes as much as you can be adaptable, be flexible, talk to people, figure out what's going on in the market, be able to tolerate the lows. You will get through this. We just want you to be fully informed of what we think is going on in the space. Thanks for listening to the Way Inclusive Innovators podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to our podcast and add us to your queue every week. Please leave us a rating and review and share with a friend to help us reach more weight inclusive business owners who could use support and pep talks. We'll see you next week. Bye.